The book of James, Soundness of Soul from the Inside Out. This is part 18. Continuing on the subject, when God doesn't seem to be doing anything. The text we read from James 5, 7 to 12. And I just want to read it to highlight a couple of things. I know you just read it. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer, and then, waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So there's precious fruit, but the precious fruit does not come quickly. And the precious fruit doesn't come automatically by itself. It has to have the rain. All right? Um, Fruit doesn't come quickly, and fruit doesn't come by itself. You also... Now he's not talking about farmers and fruit... And rain, now he's talking about us and he's talking about our lives. Be patient. Like that farmer, be patient. Establish your hearts. How do we do that? Well, it involves recognizing something. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. The judge is standing at the door. And James just feels it's not out of place to remind Christians, Christians who understand salvation by grace, a good God, a merciful God, he still doesn't think it's inappropriate to remind them that God is closer to us in terms of observing our lives than we often think. As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. I'm going to talk about that near the end of this message. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. He gives Job as an example. Twelve. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth, by any other means. Um, There can come a rashness when we lose a sense of patience. We can get impulsive. We can get get upset. Um, don't, Don't get like that. Be patient. Face everything patiently. Isn't it interesting? Not even just victoriously, but patiently. And so, Lord, we come and we ask you to help us as we work our way, continuing in this text. Come, Holy Spirit, and bless and direct us. We feel we would be remiss if we didn't pray. We have a new government. We have uh, a new prime minister coming into office. And uh, surely all need your wisdom as cabinets are selected and everything is done. And we just pray. We just pray, Father, that as people are selected and assignments taken, that you would uh, guide and direct and accomplish your will for the furtherance of the gospel and the building of your kingdom in our country. We ask it in Jesus' name. Everyone said? What a text this is. James is unpacking the treasure of growth in Christ. He makes that clear, growth in Christ, by the opening remarks about fruit and seeds. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it until it receives the early and late rain. So there's Precious fruit. There is precious fruit that God wants to grow still in my life. And there's precious fruit that God wants to grow in your life. 
But the fruit needs something besides itself to mature and ripen. Something else must be added to make my life fruitful. There's things I know. There's things I believe. There's all sorts of doctrines. There's all sorts of commands. There's all sorts of examples. There's all sorts of teachings. And I know some of them, and you know some of them. And and so we say we believe in Jesus, and we want to be good Christians. There. And James says, well, no, that won't do it. Something else has to be added. Something has to be added to make the fruit grow. Fruit doesn't spring automatically from seed. There's an until in this process. See that? Until it receives the early and the late rains. The text goes further. Verse 10 identifies what these rains are. He's not talking about literal rain that falls from heaven. He tells us what the rain is in verse 10 as an example of suffering and patience, brothers. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Suffering and patience are what make fruit grow. Don't rush past those words. James is dealing with something precious, something we all seek after. He's dealing with how everything in my Christian walk moves beyond just being started to being ripened. That's how fruit works, right? You ever go to the, you know, we, we shop and we look at fruit and, and Rini's always pointing out to me, I'm, I'm just walking down the aisle and I see peaches. Only, only it's, it's February 3rd. And I'm just grabbing peaches. And she says, why would you? They're hard as rocks. There's no taste. This is not the time. Those aren't ripened peaches. That's what James is talking about. Not just how things are started. I believe this. I believe this. I go to church. Uh, I, I teach a class. I do a Bible study. I usher. I sing in the choir. I try to be a good person. I try to live by the golden rule. How, how do all these things, these components, how do they move beyond just being there to ripening there? How everything moves from just being information to fruit-producing, life-changing. We need to know this. So last week, we looked at two ideas, two life lessons. First, these are online if you want them, there's no authentic spirituality apart from patience, and God can't give patience quickly. Now, That, of course, is the whole point that James drills down into in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient. You see him saying the same thing over and over again? Until it receives the early and the late rains. So there's no authentic spirituality apart from patience, and God can't give patience quickly. That's life lesson one. Two, patience has value. Patience has value because it teaches priorities. 
Patience focuses life. Patience weeds out what's trivial. Patience puts a leash on all of my immediate desires and reins them in a little bit in pursuit of something worth waiting for. That's what it does. The passing of time with faith and patience and courage, it educates all of our energies and all of our impulses and all of our instincts. That's James' teaching, especially in verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The idea here is pleasure doesn't make us think about the coming of the Lord. Trials do. That's the idea. Be patient about all the other circumstances of your life and be anxiously longing for the coming of the Lord. That's what he's saying. This idea of waiting for the coming of the Lord isn't some little sidebar in the New Testament. Actually, it's it's kind of what salvation in all of its aspects is rooted in. Waiting for the coming of the Lord is what we do as disciples. I get that. One of the places is Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. You start off with this definition of salvation. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So it isn't a move from non-worship to worship. It's a movement from It's a movement from false worship to true worship. Everybody's a worshiper. Conversion just brings you to God through Christ to worship. Great. How How do you know? How do you know if that's happened in someone's life? Well, here's what people do. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from wrath to come. And so, finally, we saw this kind of faithful waiting isn't easy to do. And I wrapped up last week. Some of you will remember reading uh, some pretty uh, sharp-edged insights from Millard Erickson's little book, Where is Theology Going? Let me just reread that. It doesn't take long. Here's what this theologian predicted we might see unfolding in the Christian mindset over two days ago. I quote, In the area of Christology, that's the doctrine of Jesus Christ, we can expect the uniqueness of Jesus to receive less and less emphasis. There will be a growing accent upon his humanity, and his unusual characteristics will come to be seen as very much like those of other outstanding leaders and teachers. Humanity, Erickson continues, so the doctrine of mankind. Humanity will be understood increasingly in natural categories and hence as having a great affinity with the other members of creation. The value of the human race will not be seen as conferred from above 
by a God who made us in his own image and likeness, but as coming from below. Human beings being the highest product of some form of evolutionary process. Sin will increasingly be a social and psychological concept rather than a religious one. It will be thought less of as violating God's law or falling short of his standard for us and more as a matter of failure to live up to one's potential. The whole idea of actual guilt will be increasingly displaced by feelings of emptiness and estrangement. Salvation will accordingly be thought of less as a supernatural or otherworldly matter and more in terms of adjustment, self-understanding. The struggle to achieve wholeness will replace the pursuit of holiness. Evangelism will lose ground to personal counseling and social protest and action. Further, salvation will not be viewed as restricted to those within the church or those with a conscious, explicit faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Other world religions will be seen as leading to the same goal and all persons of goodwill who are noble in their concerns and actions will be thought of as brothers and sisters. Finally, he says eschatology, which gets more to what we're talking about. Waiting for the coming of the Lord. The Lord is at hand. So eschatology is the doctrine of future things, last things. Eschatology will increasingly lose its futuristic and otherworldly character. The present and earthly dimension of the kingdom of God will be emphasized more than the future spiritual aspect. The emphasis that the kingdom will be introduced by the supernatural personal coming of Christ will yield to the idea that it can be brought about by human endeavors. And then he says, we conclude with an observation on the practical level. Given the shifts in doctrinal emphasis that we have mentioned, preaching will be more horizontal than vertical. It will be more geared to meeting human needs and comforting human hurts in the here and now than to glorifying God, declaring his expectations and his promises to us. Now remember... Erickson wrote those words back in 1994. Now we can now see the precision of his guesswork. He's, he's describing the, the devaluation of sound biblical thinking that always accompanies the abandonment of looking for the coming of the Lord. That's what happens when people don't think about the coming of the Lord. Different people, by the way, asked about that book, and I, I have no hesitation to, to, they could try and get it. I'm simply saying, I'm reading something that is relevant to the message. If you read this whole book, most of you will find it as dry as sawdust, and I'm just warning you that, okay? Like, it, there's nothing wrong with the book. It's just not a book that very many people, weird people like me will enjoy, and most of you are going to, if you do buy it, you're going to read it and go, what in the world was he thinking? You know, so don't. Just run out and grab the book. And now we're coming back to continuing the second point from last Sunday. The value of patience is the power it carries to teach us what to live for. That was the second point. We just sort of started unpacking this. 
What is gained? What is gained by a mindset that locks in on the second coming of the Lord while patiently following him against the grain of this world's culture? What's gained? And the scriptures give answers to that question. Jesus starts, Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If what they say about you is true, there's no blessing. You're just living wrong. But when they say things about you that are false, then, then you're really blessed. And you think, Jesus, you obviously have this all upside down. Rejoice and be glad. Okay, rejoice and be glad when people persecute you falsely. Why would anyone rejoice at being persecuted falsely, unjustly, accused of doing things you never did, your rights trampled on, cheated out of something, wronged in some way, for no good reason? Why would anybody rejoice? You get even. That's what you do, Jesus. You get mad. You leave the church. No, rejoice. Be glad. There it is. People who think about the second coming, people who think about heaven, people who think about eternity don't become just lame, pie-in-the-sky, bleary-eyed, otherworldly people. They have a strength in this world that no one else possesses. That's what Jesus is saying. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm going to talk about that phrase later on. So it's true. You are blessed even in the midst of painful and undeserved mistreatment, and you can still rejoice, but Jesus says only if you consciously Fast forward, fast forward to heaven. This is where you're going. This is where your rewards are. This is where your joy lies. Here's something else. Paul talks about the very same thing. So James, Jesus, Paul. We're in pretty good company here. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What he's saying there is when somebody does you evil, you find a way to honor them. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. So if somebody wrongs me, how many times can I try and get even with that person? Zero. Not once, not ever, not in any circumstance, not at any time, never. Well, doesn't seem fair. People are going to trample all over me. How will I get ahead in this world? This is not the way Donald Trump lives. Never avenge yourself. Notice, well, then what, what, then what? If I'm not going to take vengeance myself, there's all sorts of ways of doing it. But if I'm not going to do that, then, then what, what do I do? Leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Here's the same subject from a different perspective. How do you keep hatred out of your heart when someone in the church abuses you? I don't mean physical abuse. I mean, you know, tramples on your rights, does something you don't like. How do you keep anger out of your heart, vengeance out of your heart, hatred out of your heart? How do you cool, how do you cool the fires that burn deep down inside? They shouldn't, they should not have done it that way. It this way. This is the way it should be. How do you do that? Willpower? Just suck it up? Paul says you can only do it by remembering the final time of reckoning before God. Leave it to the wrath of God. You rest in a future accounting. All will be made right. And this is what enables you to love your enemy even when he does something unlovable to you. Now here, I have another example. Hebrews 10, 36 and 37. Well, leave that for a minute. I'm going to read another text first, sorry. Hebrews 10, 32 to 37, I want to read first. So just ignore that slide for a minute. 10, 32. But recall the former days when you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with suffering. So they, they came to Christ out of Jewish background, and so there'd be an awful lot of persecution. And he says, once you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, and affliction, reproach, we can, affliction, what does that mean? Were they beaten physically? That's what we think of when we think of affliction. Tortured in some way. And sometimes being partners with those so mistreated. What's that mean? He's going to say, for you had compassion on those in prison. So, some people followed Christ, and they were persecuted and afflicted, and they were put in prison. And it would be very easy for me to keep my house and keep my possessions if I just pretended I didn't know you. But he says, rather, rather than that, I would willingly give up my home and all my, all my GICs and, 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 and all of my funds and all of my investments. I would give all of it up because I'm going to go and side with you in prison. And when I visit you in prison, they know I'm a follower of Jesus. I've tipped my hand. You had compassion on those in prison. Look what happened. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Do you have a house? Do you own it? Is it yours? How would you feel if someone just, you went home today after church, you don't have a house. You can't go there. It's been taken. It's been taken because they found out you were here worshiping Jesus this morning. Think about it. What would you do? Joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. 
Why? What gives someone that kind of moral fortitude? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They were thinking about what James says. What happens when you think about the coming of the Lord is at hand? And you're patient. Fruit starts to grow in your life. Strength, endurance, character, conviction. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. I don't know if it's worth that to follow Jesus. No, no, don't go there, the writer says. For you have need of endurance. James says you wait for the early and the late rains. You just wait. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, it's good to do the will of God. When you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while... And the coming one will come and not delay. So I've given you three passages. First in James, and then Jesus, and then Paul, and then the writer of Hebrews. All those passages. And we see the teaching on the second coming as it's linked to practical strength and patient power for the present, for this world. What enabled these people to give away their property and share with those in need? Well, they had better possessions in view. They thought more about what was coming than what they had. They had better possessions in view, eternal possessions. If you forget about heaven, you will be small. You will be small. Even if you're very wealthy, you will be small. Look at verses 36 and 37 now. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So doing the will of God isn't quite enough all by itself. Duty needs a perspective if it's going to have endurance. Duty needs a perspective if it's going to be long-term, through thick and thin, no matter what. Even people who do the will of God, cleanly and faithfully, they can lose heart. The will of God is not always a piece of cake. The will of God doesn't always make life easier, in spite of what you might hear. Sometimes it's a very costly thing to follow the Lord. These people were put in prison. And the strength to do that comes from establishing your heart patiently around the coming of the Lord. I'm waiting for the coming of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden For three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And he considered the reproach of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Moses. And the way the writer says, he he couldn't see it all fully yet, but it's the reproach of Christ. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? 
He was looking for the reward. What keeps a person from allowing idols in his or her heart? What keeps a person from selling out for the pleasures of sin and temptation? Well, the text says. The text tells us it takes more than stoic willpower. We're going to just try and do the will of the Lord. It takes a vibrant hope in a better country. The eternal kingdom of Christ. The hope of a new heaven and a new earth. If our hearts are fixed there, it will help keep us pure in temptation and strong in trial. No wonder. James reminds these dear, frustrated, persecuted, and almost worn out saints. Remember? 1-1 to the scattered Christians. That's who he's writing. Not holidaying. Scattered. Running. James writes to these dear, frustrated, persecuted Christians, 5.8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. I can't make this go away, James is saying. But establish your hearts. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Here's my question, church. What is the supremely influential fact about your future? What is the supremely influential fact about your future? For some, it's retirement. Can you keep watching? How much will I have? What's my income going to be? For some, it's graduation. Two more exams. For some, it's promotion. For some, your thoughts about the future are all geared around acquisition. For others, children's quality of life. What is the supremely influential fact? What is it about the future that shapes you right now? For the Christian, there's only one correct answer to that question. Establish all the aspirations, all the efforts, all the desires, all the ambitions of your whole being around the coming of the Lord. Want to be ready for the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Life lesson number three. We're almost done. As you wait... For the Lord, keep all bitterness and grumbling out of your heart. This is where James goes next. James 5, 9 to 12. Do not grumble against one another. We grumble, don't we? We grumble when something is happening that has upset our present set of circumstances. Something has taken away our joy right now. Something has taken away our comfort right now. Something has taken away our rights right now. And so we we grumble. James says what that indicates is you're thinking about that more than you're thinking about the coming of the Lord. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. This is the second time he said this. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers, do not swear 
so help me, I'm going. Either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not follow, fall under condemnation. Now, there's more meat in those words when we remember the context. The first part of chapter 5 makes clear the kind of abuse and mistreatment these people were suffering. But James reminds them they aren't righteous just because they're victims. They only become righteous in God's eyes when they suffer without bitterness, without grumbling, without revenge. They aren't to fall into rash, impulsive, profane speech. Well, then what are they supposed to do? Well, they're supposed to remember the prophets. Strange, eh? They're to remember the prophets. They're to think about Job. This is the final part of James' teaching on endurance. We count those blessed who remain steadfast. If you don't know the story of the prophets, you are shortchanging yourself in the battle for endurance. A knowledge of the history of the Old Testament is assumed in these verses. Did you notice it? He says to you, to me, consider the prophets. And if you're like most Christians, you're sitting right now thinking, prophets? What in the world? Prophets? What prophets? And here's the problem with that. James says that's what's going to help you endure. If you don't know, you can't endure. If you don't know the story of the prophets, you are shortchanging yourself in the battle for endurance. There's this knowledge of the history of the Old Testament. And, like it or not, Jesus assumed the very same thing. He did that in Matthew 5. We already read these verses. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus says, think, think about the prophets. Now what's assumed in James and Jesus is the ability to relate Old Testament accounts to present-day life. What's assumed is, we know these stories. That's what's assumed. We can connect the dots between Old Testament Bible and modern-day life. We know how to do that. That's what James and Jesus are assuming. Can you do that? Read, study, make the connection. You can't live as you should live until you know what you should know. Crave depth in God's Word. Know the stories. Get into a Christian ed class. Come to church Sunday night. Listen to sermons, anyone's sermons. Read at least three chapters of the Bible every day of your life. 
Do you know the story of Jeremiah? He was abused and tortured over and over again just for delivering God's message. Jeremiah, God tells him, go and tell the people this, 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 this. Be a faithful servant. Tell them the message. Oh, by the way, they're not going to listen to you. But he does what God tells him to do. Do you know the story of Jeremiah? Do you know the story of Isaiah? History tells us he was sawn in two just for being faithful to the Lord. Do you know the story of Job? He had to endure not knowing what the outcome of his trials would be. We know because we read the end of the book. He didn't know any of that. Are you trying to endure unarmed? You're paying for your kids to go to university. If they knew their exam material the way you knew the Old Testament, would you be happy with your financial investment? There are some things you don't know. You don't know the end of your story. You don't know why life is unfolding as it is. All you know is you've done the best you know how to do. You've, you've planted faithfully. You've sown the best you know how. You've prayed. You fight off anger and bitterness of heart. Or, or maybe you're here and you've just messed things up so royally you feel it's too late for God to ever do anything good in your life. I'm sure there's people like that in church this morning. Either way, James has the same admonition for you and me. Drive your life deeper into God's word. Don't cruise the surface of it. Know the stories. Look at the lives. Soak up the examples. I read a paragraph from William Kirkpatrick in his wonderful book, Why Johnny Can't Tell Right from Wrong and What to Do About It. quotes the words of uh, Lynn Cheney, who was then chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And I couldn't get these words out of my mind. Let me just, just listen to this. And I have to jump into the middle of a thought, but you'll see where this is going. But what about the other kind of story that opens our eyes, wakes us up to the fact that we are part of a continuity extended through time? Do you know the Old Testament prophets, James says? What happens when these stories are neglected? Let me suggest there are grave consequences when we fail to awaken the time-binding capacity in our youth. People who grow up without a sense of how yesterday has affected today are unlikely to have a strong sense of how today affects tomorrow. Bingo. They are unlikely to understand in a bone-deep way how the decisions they make now will shape and affect their future. It's only when we know the stories, only when we become conscious of the flow of time that the consequences of action, whether it's taking drugs or dropping out of school, becomes a consideration. It is only when we have perspective on our lives that motives besides immediate gratification, can come into play. So 
So listen to these tough but sparkling words from James today. And above all, set your heart, your naturally fearful, bleeding, broken, impatient, impulsive heart, set it firmly on the coming of the Lord. Don't chafe, don't grumble, don't gossip. Know the story of the prophets. Let patience produce wonderful fruit. And you can't help but be joyful there. And everyone said...